السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أما بعد Then I welcome all of you my brothers and my sisters and respected guests to this gathering here at Masjid Abi Huraira in the city of Stoke <clears throat> unfortunately <clears throat> for a gathering that I would have preferred that we wouldn't have needed because in reality no Muslim should have the dissatisfaction of sitting in front of a population or a community explaining to them that terrorism is alien to Islam and foreign to Islam why should we have to do that and the reason is, of course, that people, and especially youngsters, that they find themselves in a situation where they are duped or beguiled or groomed into terrorist acts. And the rest of the community and the rest of us, after they have done the damage and inflicted the pain that they inflicted, we sit here now having to explain the true Islamic position which shouldn't need explaining because any Muslim who has studied the faith and any Muslim who has testified to the fact that Allah alone is deserving of being worshipped and that his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam came to call people to worship the one true Lord Allah and he was the finality of the prophets and the messengers and he came with a revelation that called the people to the truth, that called the people to guidance, that called the people from darkness into illumination. A religion that does not call to chaos and disorder and anarchy. A religion that simply calls the people to obey their Lord, recognize him, acquaint themselves with him, with his names, his attributes, with paradise and hellfire a path for the believers and a path for the unbelievers. So sitting here now having to explain the behavior of a fringe minority, a marginalized group that has always been on the margins of Al-Islam and of the Muslim communities since the time that they reared their heads in the time of the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But nevertheless, <clears throat> Though we are not pleased, we still see it as our religious duty to forbid that which we consider to be evil and that which is evil in the sight of Allah and the sight of the Messenger and his slave Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that is that Islam did not come to destroy the lives of people but rather to save them. Islam brings life to the hearts that are dead it gives sight to the blind. It lifts the hearts and lifts the spirits. It is not there to terrorize the people or to cast into them a hatred for the true religion. 
Islam is there to call people to read the book of Allah, read that revelation that was given to Muhammad وسلم, the actual spoken words of the creator of the heavens and the earth. So let me make it clear from the outset that in this lecture I wish to take a textual approach, a theological approach, if you will, in responding to the ideologies of terrorism. We call ourselves Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, Ahlul Hadith, or Salafis. Ahlul Sunnah because we follow the Sunnah or the path of the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and his disciples. We follow the Jama'ah, meaning the main body, because the companions of Allah's Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and likewise those who came after them from the earlier generations, meaning the Sahaba, the Tabi'een, and the Atba'u Tabi'een, meaning the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad, then their followers, and then their followers. They are known as the Jama'ah. So Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah are the people who follow the path of the Messenger Muhammad, and they hold to their main body, that which the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad were upon, and that is the orthodoxy of Islam. Many people, they confuse between orthodoxy and extremism, they think that they are the same thing. Orthodoxy is that which is right, that which is textual, that which is pure, that which is rightly guided, that is orthodox. Extremism is to go outside of those bounds and to transgress them and to exaggerate. We are Ahlul Hadith, meaning that we are the people of Hadith, meaning the people of the prophetic tradition. We hear the words of the Prophet وسلم, as they were recorded by his disciples and preserved generation after generation in the books of Hadith. So the ones who take that, they are the people of Hadith. They look at the, they look at the actions of the Prophet وسلم, and they emulate them. They listen to the words of the Prophet وسلم, and they act in accordance to them. They see the community around the Prophet and they see that is the model community that the Muslims should follow. And that is the community of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And that's why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said about them, he said, khairun nas, or in a narration, khairukum, that the best of mankind, or the best of you, qarni, is my generation. Then those who come after them, then those who come after them. So as Muslims we are, compelled by text and by scripture, by the evidence and by the proofs, to hold on to that which they were on, of orthodoxy, of that which is correct. So anything that occurs around us, if a Muslim commits a certain crime, or he speaks with certain speech, that sounds that there is something not quite right, then how does he measure it? What does he measure it against? He measures it, measures it against those early generations. He measures it against the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, the prophetic tradition, the generation of the companions. We are the followers of the Salaf. We are Salafi, meaning that we follow the earlier generations because the term Salaf in the Arabic language refers to the pious generations who preceded us. And there is none more pious 
than the, than the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and his disciples, his companions. So when we respond to the terrorists, the inciters, the insurgents, or even the lone wolf that acts independently, even though there's actually nothing independent about his actions, because they are, they are a result of an influence that came externally, of grooming that occurred. A person doesn't act by himself. He learns or he's indoctrinated or brainwashed, whichever term you wish to use, into a cult that legitimizes acts of violence against others that Allah and his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa forbade. So when we respond to them, the respond is not merely on the basis of look at the society that you live in, you're not supposed to do that. That doesn't answer the influence that he has or the grooming that he received. He was groomed or she was groomed if, she is, if it is a female terrorist. So to combat that indoctrination requires knowledge of the textual evidences. It requires knowledge of the Quran, knowledge of the Arabic language, knowledge of the Hadith, knowledge of the way of the Sahaba, knowledge of the books of creed and belief that were written in the earlier generations. Because that's the measure. What else are you going to measure with? If you're going to use the religion, then what am I going to use to combat you? If they are going to claim that the acts that they are performing are in the name of Allah, that they did it for Allah, that Allah sanctioned it, Allah gave them the license to do it, then the onus of proof is upon him. He has to prove that Allah gave him license, that he found it in the Quran or he found it in the Hadith. Then our response would be, show us in the Quran what you took. Show us in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he commanded you to kill women, to kill children, to kill unarmed people, to kill civilians, male or female, regardless. Give us something from the biography of the Prophet ﷺ because our model and our example that we emulate is the Messenger Muhammad ﷺ. Where do you live? Well, I live in a non-Muslim environment. I live in a community and in a society that is not Muslim. Did the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam ever find himself in a community that was non-Muslim? If the answer is yes, then look to how he behaved in a non-Muslim environment. You say that I'm weak, that the Muslims as an ummah are weak, which is true, that they are relatively weak. There are powers from the outside that come and they invade the Muslim lands. As Muslims, we need to have answers. Muslims get killed, they get bombed from 30,000 feet in the sky. What's the answer? The answer again is in the hadith of Allah's Messenger وسلم, in the seerah, in the life of Allah's Messenger. How are you going to know how to access that unless you have knowledge? How are you going to access that? And this is why the importance of knowledge, al-ilmu qabl al-qawli wal-amal, that every single person of hadith and sunnah and salafiyya knows that knowledge precedes speech and action. How can you act and you don't have knowledge? How can you speak in the name of Allah and in the name of the religion, in the name of the Prophet Muhammad, in the name of his disciples, and you have no knowledge of what they were upon? 
Is it just something that you feel internally, emotionally? That you're angry, so you need to vent your anger? Is that the way of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? The majority of you, of you sitting here today are Muslim. If I was to ask you what is the most sacred site in Islam, what would you say? Which is the most sacred site? Mecca or Kaaba? The most sacred city? Mecca. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was born in Mecca. He was raised in Mecca. He received revelation at the age of 40. So for 40 years, he lived amongst the people of Mecca. Those people of Mecca were idol worshippers. They were pagans. They didn't worship Allah except the odd one and the odd two here and there. The vast majority of them, if not nearly all of them, bar one or two, were worshippers of idols. 360 idols made out of rock and wood and stone were erected around the Kaaba. The Kaaba was built by which prophet? Whose prophet? Abraham. And his son Ishmael built the Kaaba. So the house of worship that was built by two noble prophets for the monotheistic worship of Allah alone, such that none but Allah is worshipped therein. By the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, 360 idols were erected in and around the Kaaba. So he received revelation at the age of 40, where Allah commanded him to call the people to the worship of Allah and to shun the idols. So he saw in front of him a task. I live in a community where all, everyone around me, my uncles, my relatives, my cousins, my tribe, the other tribes, all of them are worshipping idols. How am I supposed to behave? For 13 years he lived in that community as a prophet, as a messenger. From the age of 40 when he received the first revelation up until the age of 53. He was calling them to the worship of Allah and to shun idolatry and to abandon paganism and to stop burying their daughters alive and to feed the poor and to feed the indigent and to look after their neighbors. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the pagans. The messenger of Allah وسلم, for 13 years lived amongst non-Muslims. 13 years as a prophet, as a messenger, of course. From the time that he was born, he lived in Mecca. So the messenger of Allah, when he was calling the people to Tawheed, did they harm him? They harmed him. Who is more deserving of protection, him or you? He is. Because he is the, most, he is the noblest of all of the prophets and messengers. And the most righteous of them. He is their imam and their leader. He is the Ashraful Khalq. He is the most noble and the most honorable of all of creation. Yet those mushriks, the idolaters, they harmed him. They tried to strangle him. They would throw the entrails, rotting entrails of animals upon his back when he was bowing next to the Kaaba. They would torture his disciples, his companions who believed in him. Believed in him. Why would they torture them? Only because they would say that our Lord is one worthy of worship and they would torture them on the basis of that and they would kill some of them in the in the most terrible manner they would kill them 
Yet the Prophet ﷺ in all of that period that he lived in a society where he was surrounded by people who hated him and hated his religion and wanted to see him dead. And they would kill him were it not. First and foremost by the protection of Allah and secondly by the protection of his uncle Abu Talib who happened to be a non-Muslim, an idol worshipper. Himself, Abu Talib was a mushrik of Quraysh. So the Prophet ﷺ lived in that society and he was weak, meaning he didn't have any physical military strength. And he was not in charge of any dawla, any state. He had no Islamic, you know, he wasn't a ruler of any nation at that time. Yet not once did he lift a sword. Sword, he didn't even lift a stick to fight with. Nor any of his disciples. In a state of weakness. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did not resort to assassinations or to plots and scheming. Nor did he even go out marching in the streets of Mecca and demand the rights that I'm a Muslim and I want my rights. Not once. He patiently bore the harm when, the thing, when things became unbearable at times. He sent some of them to Habasha. Sent them to Ethiopia. He said to them, I'm sending you to the land of Ethiopia, Abyssinia. And above them, or, or they have a ruler there who is a king that does not wrong anyone. Which land did he send them to? Abyssinia. Was that a Muslim land? What land was it? A land of Christians. The king of the land was the Najashi. The Najashi himself, or the Negus himself, was a Christian. And the Prophet said, things are becoming very constricted and very hard for the Muslims here. Let them migrate. And a group of them, they migrated to Abyssinia. Seeking refuge from the torment of the people of Mecca. Yet the Prophet ﷺ did not leave. He stayed. They boycotted him. He stayed. They beat the companions. He stayed. They tortured the companions. He stayed. They stopped feeding them, meaning they stopped doing trade with them. So they went hungry. But he stayed. And he did not raise the sword. He did not kill a single one of them. And Allah did not command him to do so. But Allah did command him with jihad. You say, well, he was commanded with jihad in Mecca? Yes, he was commanded with jihad. In Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ. You say, well, you just said that he didn't fight. He didn't fight. Which tells you what? That jihad in the time of Mecca was not with the sword. And it was not with weaponry. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet sallallahu in Mecca فَلَا تُطِعِ الْكَافِرِينَ وَجَاهِدْهُمْ بِهِ جِهَادٍ كَبِيرًا He said to the Prophet sallallahu And do not obey, O Prophet, do not obey the unbelievers. And strive against them in jihad with it. The greater jihad or the great jihad. So the Prophet ﷺ was commanded, number one, don't obey the unbelievers. Don't obey them. When they call you to what they call you to, of disobedience to Allah, or disbelief in Allah, or not calling upon Allah, or the worship of the idols, do not obey the kafirin. Do not obey the unbelievers. وَجَاهِدْهُمْ بِهِ جِهَادٍ كَبِيرًا But rather make jihad against them, the great jihad. This jihad that the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to make, Bil Ijma' was not the jihad of the sword because there was no jihad 
physical jihad with weaponry or, 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 or military jihad in Mecca. He was commanded to struggle against them, to make jihad against them by way of da'wah and the Quran and the Sunnah and the right way to call them to the worship of Allah. This is your struggle, O Muhammad. This is the great jihad that you have to make in Mecca. So in Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to convey the message of the Quran, to shun and to warn against the practice of idolatry. So we as Muslims, we learn the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ for a purpose. We learn the biography and the life of the Prophet for a purpose that when we find ourselves in a situation similar to the situation that the Prophet ﷺ found himself in, then we behave as he behaved. What's the purpose of the sunnah otherwise? Well, you just invent what to do. You decide day to day. Well, I find myself in a very difficult spot as far as my religion is concerned. So let me just invent something for myself. I don't like the way that that non-Muslim looked at me. So I think I'm going to treat him, you know, in a violent manner. Or I'm going to hurt him or I'm going to stab him. Is that what the sunnah is there for? To just to be ignored? The whole purpose of the sunnah is that when you find yourself in a situation... Similar to the situation of the Prophet ﷺ, then you do what he did. So you're on a journey. You can't find water. Prayer time is coming in. Where do you look for guidance? Sunnah. True or not true? You're on a journey. It's the month of Ramadan. So you're supposed to be fasting in the month of Ramadan. You've just embarked upon a journey. And your throat is parched. You need some water. Where do you find the answer to that question? Am I allowed to break, not break? What do I do? Should I take a drink, not take a drink? Should I suffer, should I not suffer? What do you do? You look towards the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa That's the whole purpose of the sunnah. When the enemies, they attack the Muslim lands. So where's the answer? What do we do? Just sit around a round table and just decide between ourselves, well... You know, I think we should do this and you think we should do that and he thinks he should do that. Everyone comes with their own answer. What do we do? The sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ when, when Medina was attacked after his migration to Medina. When the calamities occur, when you are confronted with situations, then the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is the recourse for the Muslim. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned that in the Quran, اتبعوا ما أنزل إليكم من ربكم ولا تتبعوا من دونه أولياء قليلا ما تذكرون And follow that which has been revealed to, you, revealed to you from your Lord. And do not follow other than that from friends and protectors, little is it that you remember. So Allah has commanded you to follow the revelation. When you visit the bathroom and you've relieved yourself, how do you know how to hygienically clean yourself? Sunnah. You look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, what he commanded on how you're supposed to cleanse yourself. The woman is on her menstruation. The, month, the menstruation comes to an end. How does she purify herself? The sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, what he told the, taught the female disciples, the companions. A man wants to make hajj. What are the conditions for my hajj to be valid? Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, when he said to his companions, take your rights of hajj from me. You want to make a decision. Shall I marry this woman? Shall I not marry this woman? Or the woman makes a decision. Or she wants to come to a decision. Shall I marry this man? Or not marry this man? I'm in two minds. What shall I do? What has the, what has the sunnah legislated? Salatul istikhara. A prayer that a Muslim prays and a supplication that he makes 
where he seeks guidance from his Lord to put him upon the straight, straight affair. In every affair of your life, your child is born. What shall I do? What am I supposed to do? My child is born as a Muslim. What am I supposed to do? What do you do? You go to the Sunnah. From the day that he's born, the Prophet ﷺ told you when to name him, when to shave his head or her head, when to sacrifice the sheep and distribute the meat, when to carry out the circumcision on the boy. The Prophet ﷺ told you what to do with a child when the child is born. Even to the extent, shave the head of the hair, weigh the hair and give charity in the weight of silver. That's the purpose of the sunnah. For the minutest of details in our worship, our spirituality and our nearness to Allah. We, we take recourse in the sunnah, we refer back to the sunnah, we refer back to the seerah of the Prophet But in a major issue like the life and death of Muslims, and the destruction of nations, and the bloodshed in warfare, we forget the sunnah, no more sunnah, khalas. what do we do now? Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu He said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed away And there was not a, a bird that flapped its wings in the sky Except that he gave us some knowledge concerning it before his passing Not a bird flaps its wings in the sky except that the Prophet gave us some knowledge concerning it So how is it possible That a group of extremists can go out and commit these acts of terrorism and then claim, well, what else are we supposed to do? Because that's the, quite often the answer you hear. Well, I was desperate. What, am I? what do you mean, what else are you supposed to do? You're supposed to look at the sunnah. What's the Prophet ﷺ? You say that you're oppressed. How are you oppressed? The Prophet ﷺ is the one who was oppressed and his disciples were oppressed in Mecca. Yet the Prophet ﷺ did not do what you did. Yet the Prophet ﷺ did not command his companions, whether it be Umar, or whether it be Uthman, or whether it be Ali, or whether it be Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, his uncle, the brave one, the martyr, the master of the martyrs of the Shuhada, Yawm Al-Qiyamah. He said he forbade all of them. Why? Because there is a time and a place it's not that Muslims are pacifists, of course we're not. I don't think there is a religion that is pacifist. We do believe in jihad. And we do believe there is a place for a battle. Because jihad upon the battlefield, the Prophet ﷺ performed it. No Muslim denies that. Except the one who is ignorant and he doesn't know. Of course we believe in the concept of jihad upon the battlefield. Because the Prophet ﷺ, after 13 years, in Mecca, he migrated to Medina. When he went to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was the ruler of the Muslims. He was their Imam. He led them in prayer. He led them in Hajj. He led them in Umrah. And he led them in battle. So in the beginning, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he migrated to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was allowed in a, in a stepwise or in stages to take to the battlefield. And most of the time it was the enemies who were attacking him and trying to kill him and destroy him and destroy this fledgling community of Muslims 
That's how he began. That's how he was most of the time. But then as Islam spread, and the jihad it spread, and then when you ponder to yourself, hold on, that jihad was how? How was it performed? Were there any conditions to that jihad? Let's look at the sunnah. Let's not just decide for ourselves what is jihad and what is not jihad and when a Muslim should fight and when a Muslim should not fight. Let's look at the sunnah. So before the period of Medina, meaning in the Meccan period, there was no fighting. Fair enough, we all agree. Muslims are weak, they were living in a non-Muslim environment and they were oppressed and they had no ability to fight anyway. And on top of that, the Muslims are weak in their iman, meaning that those who were Muslims, they were strong, but Islam was weak, meaning that there weren't many Muslims upon the faith. Those who were, that were on the faith, like Abu Bakr and Omar, of course they were strong in iman and strong in faith. But as far as the numbers, the numbers were low. And there were only a handful of Muslims in Mecca. Then he migrated to Medina, so then the numbers, they increased. The tribes of Khazraj and Aus, they became Muslim, the vast majority of them. Many Jews, they entered into Islam. Some of the outlying tribes and the Bedouins, they started becoming Muslim. And they migrated to Medina, so Medina became a place where the people gravitated to and they migrated to. So now the Messenger of Allah is their ruler. And he's their leader. So now, the first condition of jihad is what? Leadership. A governance. A ruler who rules a land. That's the condition. Because before that there was no jihad. Allah only sanctioned jihad after the Prophet ﷺ took the reins of power in Medina. First condition. That's why you find it in the books of fiqh, in the books of jihad, in the books of hadith. And that's what you find on the, on the speech of the scholars. That the jihad upon the battlefield requires that you have a ruler over a Muslim land. That he rules over a population. And he has a recruited army. That's jihad. Which country doesn't have a recruited army today? So a Muslim who wishes to, to participate in battle, join an army and perform jihad, then he has to find an army. His army is not in an apartment on the 13th floor in a tower block in East, tower block in East London. That is not a government. That is not a state. That is not a leadership, nor is it a rulership. Imagine what kind of chaos there would be in the world if the armies were gathered on that basis. These aren't armies. These are terrorist cells. This is not what the Prophet ﷺ did in Medina. Nor did he do it in Mecca. So where do you get the ideology that you can have a terrorist cell or operate as a lone wolf? Under which leadership? Under what authority? What gives you the right? If you say, well, I don't accept the rulership of any ruler. Then behave like the Prophet ﷺ behaved in Mecca then. And he didn't fight. If you say, well, okay, I accept a ruler. If you accept a ruler, then withhold your hand and don't fight. Because no ruler of any Muslim country commands you to go and stab people on a bridge in London. No one commands you with that. And even if they were to command you with that, because maybe there's something mentally unstable about them, that someone would command you to go and kill a woman, or kill a civilian, or kill people who are just getting on with their daily lives, then you wouldn't obey him anyway, because the Prophet said, there is no obedience to the creation in disobedience to the Creator. 
To kill civilians is disobedience to the Creator. The Prophet said in a hadith reported by Imam al-Bukhari, an authentic narration. He said, do not kill women and children. Don't kill women and children. We are not allowed to kill emissaries. When some emissaries came to the Prophet and they spoke to the Prophet of Allah in an unbefitting manner, he did not touch them. And he did not harm them. He listened to what they had to say and sent them back. Why? Because they were emissaries. Ambassadors are not killed. Emissaries are not killed. Those under, the, under an agreement and under treaties are not killed. Who makes the agreements and treaties? The rulers of countries. So the Muslim rulers today have treaties. You may not like them. But then who asked you anyway? If you're a baker or a butcher or an engineer or a car mechanic, then that's your role. Their role is rulership. If they've signed treaties with the non-Muslims that we will not harm you, then we abide by those treaties. The Prophet said, Hear and obey the ruler. Whether it is bitter for you or whether it is easy for you, hear and obey him. They said, Ya Rasulullah, in a narration, they said, O Messenger of Allah, what do we do when we come across rulers who demand all of their rights? But they don't give us any of our rights. He said, hear them and obey them. Upon you is your burden and upon them is their burden. Hear them and obey them. In a narration he said, even if they beat you in your back, hear them and obey them. So now that's the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, whether it is bitter for you or it is sweet for you. Times are going to be easy, times are going to be hard. But the sunnah remains steady. And it remains a constant that a Muslim always gravitates towards. Always, when something happens, I need to know what the sunnah said. I need to know what the Prophet ﷺ did. I need to know what he did when he was in the situation that I find myself in. What do I do when my uncle stops talking to me? What do I do if my uncle is a non-Muslim? Well, the Prophet's uncle was a non-Muslim. Let me see what he did. Did he kill him? Did he take a sword to his neck and say, well, you're my uncle, you're a non-Muslim, let me just slice you at your neck? Is that what he did? The Prophet ﷺ sat by his bed, upon his deathbed, all of his life, the Prophet ﷺ accompanied him. And his uncle was a mushrik. And the Prophet ﷺ stayed with him. And upon his deathbed, he sat next to his uncle and he said, Ya Ammi. He said, My uncle, Qul la ilaha illallah. Say la ilaha illallah. Say that none has the right to be worshipped except for Allah. And I will argue your case for you in front of, your, in front of Allah, Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Just say la ilaha illallah. That was the Prophet ﷺ with his non-Muslim uncle. Then when he died, and he died as an unbeliever, Ali radiallahu anhu said, the old man, the shaykh, he has died. So the Prophet ﷺ said, go and bury him. So he buried him. Imam al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he states in a chapter heading, he states the permissibility of washing the body of a mushrik who is a close relative of yours. Why? Because at the end of the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said to Ali, now go and make ghusl. 
At the end of the hadith, after burying Abu Talib, he said to Ali, go and make ghusl. Then the hadith finishes by the narrator saying, and Ali would not make ghusl unless he had washed a body of the deceased. So many of the scholars, they say, Ali washed the body of, Ali, of Abu Talib, his uncle, before burying him, even though there was no janazah, because he died as a mushrik. So there's no janazah for him. But this is something that some of the scholars, they say, for a close relative, it is permissible to wash their body and then bury them without janazah. Now, put, the, put yourself, actually don't put yourself, but think how the terrorist thinks. What would he do in that situation? Look at his attitude towards non-Muslims. Forget non-Muslims, look at his attitude towards Muslims. Because this is the point that I keep making to journalists and academics. And they say, well, why do these Muslims, why do they want to kill non-Muslims? I said, well, if it makes any difference, they're actually quite indiscriminate. They don't discriminate. They will kill a Muslim as easily as they kill a non-Muslim. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned their traits. And we'll mention some of those traits later, but the point I want to make is that the Prophet ﷺ made clear what these people are, that they are killers. And most of the terrorist attacks that take place in the world today, where do they take place? I mean, are we, do we not ponder? Most terrorist attacks take place in which countries? Muslim countries. Egypt. Morocco, Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen. Are any of these Western liberal societies? These are 90 plus percent Muslim countries. Yet that's where the terrorist attacks take place. So who are the victims of terrorists ultimately and primarily? They are Muslims themselves. And then... As an afterthought, they'll kill some non-Muslims along the way. As an afterthought. And this is the way of the Khawarij. This is the way of the Khawarij. Sheikh Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Now, I've just thrown in a word Khawarij and I haven't really explained myself. Terrorists, insurgents, inciters of violence, those who rebel against Muslim nations and their rulers, they all come under a single heading known as the Khawarij in the Arabic language. They're called Khawarij because they made khuruj, that they rebelled and they exited the main body of Muslims and turned against them. So when they exited the main body of the Muslims and turned against them to fight them and to kill them, they were thereafter known as Khawarij. Because of the khuruj. And this first happened in the time of Uthman radiallahu anhu, the third caliph. The third caliph was killed by this sect that you would call today terrorists, insurgents. They, they besieged his house in Medina. They entered the house and they killed him whilst he was reading the Quran. And he was over 80 years old. He was 83 or thereabouts. They shed his blood and his blood was splattered over the mushaf that he was reading. This is what they did to the third caliph. And you think to yourself, well, who's the third caliph? This third caliph was married to two of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. He was married to one and then she died. 
Then he married the second one after the first one died. This is the Prophet wasallam with Uthman. So Uthman anhu, was a pious believer. The Prophet wasallam said, should I not be shy in front of the one whom the angels are shy? The angels were shy in front of Uthman, but these khawarij and these terrorists were not shy in front of Uthman. Then they rebelled again in the time of the fourth caliph. They were terrorists. They set up terrorist cells. The first terrorist cell that was set up was set up in the time of Ali. They moved into the town where Ali was residing. And one of them, Abdurrahman ibn Miljim, he plotted against Ali radiallahu anhu and he struck him with his sword before the Fajr prayer and killed him. They killed the fourth caliph. Who was the fourth caliph? He was the son-in-law of the Prophet sallallahu Married to the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Fatima radiallahu anha. And he was, of course, one of the most beloved of all of the companions from the ten who were promised Jannah. As was Uthman, as was Abu Bakr, as was Umar, as was Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas and the rest of the, the ten. So they killed two of the caliphs. These were the khawarij. They rebelled against rulership. The rulership of the Muslim ruler. What you're seeing as a, you know, almost like a farah or a, or an overflow of what is taking place in the Muslim countries in this country is as a result of their prime objective. Their prime objective is what is rebellion and revolution in the Muslim countries. That's their prime goal. I remember back in the 19, early 1990s or maybe even the late 80s, I used to drive to university in the 80s, in the late 80s, I think it was. And on the, I think it was on the M M1. And I came across a bridge. On the bridge, there was right on, right on top of the bridge, there was a, like a poster. And it said, Public Enemy Number One, King Fahad. I'm on a motorway in a land of 70 million non Muslims. 70 million at that time, maybe even more. With a small minority of Muslims. So the first thing that I want non-Muslims to see is that the public enemy number one of the whole world is King Fahad. This is the way of the Prophet ﷺ. This is the way of the call of Al-Islam and what the Prophet and the messengers before him called to. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already mentioned in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا and we did not send a messenger except to every nation calling them to what? To the worship of Allah. And to avoid the worship of the false deities. And to abandon the false deities. The worship of Allah is what we call to. Not to extremism. Or political activism. Or to rebellion. Or this one is public enemy number one. And then a few weeks later I was driving down the same motorway. Then, lo and behold, public enemy number two turned up. Husni Mubarak in those days, they put his picture up there. This is the call of these types of people. Now compare that to what the Prophet ﷺ called to in Mecca. When the Muslims were in a small minority. And they were trying to convince the people to come to Islam, to understand Islam, to acquaint themselves with the Lord and the creator of the heavens and the earth. And compare it to the calls of these people. 
Imagine that was in the late 80s or the early 90s. How many generations till, from then till now of our Muslim youth have been affected by that ideology? Consider how these people have been allowed to preach and to incite hatred and to call to their evil doctrines for all of these decades. So obviously some people are going to get affected. So these terrorists, we call them khawarij. The great scholar Sheikh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, most Muslims are familiar with this name. Ibn Taymiyyah was a great scholar of the 8th century, died in 728 after the Hijrah. He spoke about these terrorists, and this is my belief with respect to them. This is my belief regarding them. He said the khawarij are more harmful to the Muslims than the other people. There is none more wicked to the Muslims than them. Not the Jews, nor the Christians. Because these khawarij, they strive to kill every Muslim who did not agree with them. Which is the point that I made with the bombs going off in street markets in the Muslim countries till this day. With all of that upheaval, kidnappings, suicide bombings, predominantly in Muslim countries. This is why Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said they strive to kill every Muslim who did not agree with them. They made permissible the spilling of Muslim blood and taking their wealth and property and killing their children and declaring them to be unbelievers. The Khawarij took this path as their religion due to their extreme ignorance and their misguided innovations. This is Khawarij. Ignorance, misguided. No scholarship and no knowledge. They'll take a verse from the Quran and they'll apply it as they see fit. Imagine anywhere or in any other religion or theology or any other sphere of life that you can just pick up something and say, well, I think this means that, so I'm going to do it. You would never consider it in any other sphere of knowledge. But they would do it in matters of life and death and in the killing of Muslims. Those verses in the Quran where Allah mentions warfare and battle and fighting, they exist in the Quran. Of course they exist in the Quran. But who are they addressing? Anyone know? Who are they addressing? The rulers. Those verses in the Quran that command the Muslims to go out and fight, they are addressing the rulers. That the rulers, that you are to command your armies to go out and fight. How do we know that? Because the Sahaba radiallahu anhum never fought unless they had a ruler commanding them. Never. Unless they had a government, a country, and they were part of a recruited army. So there is no jihad except with a ruler. And there is no jihad except with qudra, except with ability. That's why the Prophet ﷺ in a state of weakness in Mecca never fought, never raised the sword. We want to see the annihilation of Islam. That's why he commanded with the hijrah to Abyssinia to save the lives of the Muslims, not to put their lives on the line and kill them. To save them. And they went to a land of the Christians. 
Imagine if they went to Abyssinia and they started killing people and knocking down churches and destroying the land and stealing the wealth of this one and stealing. And you ask them, what are you doing? They say, this is Darul Harb. How has it become a land of war? Who, who gives you the right to label countries lands of war? Who gives you the right to declare war? Who declares wars? The rulers. Individual companions didn't declare war. War was declared by the caliphs, by the rulers of the Muslims, by the messenger Muhammad. This is why we say Orthodox Islam takes its reek or, or, or makes as its reference point the life of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and his Sahaba. That's why the Prophet said, Whomsoever lives from among you for long will see a great amount of controversy. So when that difference occurs, when that controversy occurs, when those difficulties take place, so hold on to that which you know of my sunnah when that happens. And the sunnah, meaning the path of the rightly guided caliphs after me. What did the Khawarij do? They killed the caliphs. What did the Prophet command? Follow them. Look at the difference between the Khawarij and look at the difference between the believers. So most people wrongly assume that the terrorists' sole targets are non-Muslims. Oh, they hate non-Muslims. They believe that we're infidels. They believe that we're infidels. And that's the reality. They will take a body of Muslims who don't agree with them and they'll say, these Muslims, they are unbelievers. They are apostates. The goal of the Kharijis, the Khawarij, the terrorists, their goal is one and that is to seize authority. That's why you find they killed Uthman. They killed the one in power. They killed Ali, the one in power. They plotted to kill Hassan and they stabbed him in his thigh. They got close to Hassan. He was the caliph after Ali radiallahu anhu for six months before he abdicated. They stabbed him in his thigh. They tried to kill him. They plotted against Muawiyah to kill Muawiyah. So whilst the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is commanding us with patience, with sabr, even when the ruler is oppressive. They came to Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu complaining about the oppression of a ruler, Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, or a governor, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And they said to him, look what he's doing, he's killing, he's slaughtering, he's oppressive, what shall we do? He said, be patient. For indeed I heard the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam commanding with patience up until you meet me at the hole. He commanded with patience sallallahu alayhi wa sallam up until you meet me at the hold he said alayhi salatu wa salam meaning at the lake of the Prophet sallallahu on the day of resurrection. So the goal of the terrorists is nothing more than power. But they want to use the religion as the vehicle to get to that place of authority. The great scholar of Sunnah and Seerah and Hadith, the scholar of history, the Quranic commentator, the Mufassir, Al Imam Al Hafiz ibn Kathir, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala, who died in the year 774 after the Hijrah, stated in Al Bidaya wa Nihaya, his tremendous work on history. He said, If the Khawarij ever gained strength, they would surely corrupt the whole of the land 
including Iraq and Syria. He said, including Iraq and Asham. They would not leave a child, male or female, neither a man nor a woman, because as far as they are concerned, the people have caused corruption that cannot be rectified except by mass killing. He said that over 700 years ago. You look at Iraq and Sham under ISIS and you see the reality and actually what, is, what he mentioned 700 years ago has happened over the last 10 years. Killing of women, killing of children, killing of people, destruction of the land, destruction of buildings, demolition of schools and hospitals. Beheading journalists and charity workers. And this is exactly what he said. If they were ever to gain authority, this is what they would do. Because they believe that the world is so corrupt that that corruption cannot be removed except by mass killing. And we see that effect of these insurgents. Wherever you see them, they, they get a foothold. You see nothing but killing, kidnapping, public beheadings. A journalist comes, asks them a question, they, they, they kidnap him and behead him, make the video and put the video online. Or they pour gasoline upon a person and they throw a, a light on him. And they make the video and they put the video online and then they say, this is from Islam. That's from Islam. You're going to tell me that is from Islam, that is the way of the Prophet Look at the life of the Prophet in Mecca. Then look at the Prophet in Medina. The Prophet was commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِنْ أَهَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ فَاسْتِجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ The Prophet was, was commanded by Allah If, O Muhammad, one of those idol worshippers was to come to you seeking your protection then give him protection so that he may hear the speech of Allah Protect the mushrik if he comes to you so that he may hear the words of Allah The one that they set on fire was a Muslim few years ago, you remember, right? They caught a pilot. He ejected from his airplane, a Jordanian pilot, Muslim. Reciting the book of Allah. Took the shahada, la ilaha illallah. Muslim. They poured gasoline on him. And then they set him ablaze and they made the video. This is the way of Rasulullah. If a mushrik came to you seeking your protection, you are the khawarij, not him. You are the ones who are deserving punishment, not him. So the murders perpetrated by the khawarij, by Allah, it is worse than the murder perpetrated by the sinners. You know why? Because when the sinner kills, or when the sinner harms someone, he does it for a worldly need, as he claims. So he robs and he shoots someone. He steals, he shoots someone. It's a, some, some sort of drug battle between two gangs. One gang, a person from one kills the other, but he doesn't say that this is what Allah has commanded me with and Allah will reward me for killing that person and stealing his drug money. You ever hear a drug dealer saying that? You ever hear a bank robber saying that? I robbed the bank, Allah will reward me. He say, I robbed the bank, astaghfirullah. I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. That's how sinners are amongst the Muslims. 
These people will kill, they will murder, they will rob banks. And these scholars have given them fatawa to rob banks. That you are living in, if you are living in the lands of the non-Muslims, you can rob their banks, they tell them. These khawarij, the qadiyya. From the worst of the khawarij, you incite others into rebellion and revolution and discord and fitna. Who's worse? The sinner who makes a mistake. He hurts someone or he kills someone or he robs someone and he knows that what he did was wrong. Or the khariji who kills and he murders or he kills himself in the process of killing others by suicide bombing. And he believes that Allah will reward him with how many ever number of virgins as he believes. When Sheikh Al-Fawzan said, when he was asked the question, Oh Sheikh, can they be considered as martyrs? He said, no, they are considered as fusaq. They are considered as sinners. They are not considered as martyrs. Not from near and not from far. It is feared for them that Allah will burn them in the hellfire for what they have done. There occurs in a narration from the companion of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Umama. That Abu Umama said about the Khawarij that they are the worst of killers who are slain under the sky. And the, best of, and, and the best of people are those who were killed by them. They are nothing but the dogs of the hellfire. They used to be Muslims, but then they became unbelievers. Abu Ghalib, the student of this disciple of the Prophet ﷺ said, Ya Aba Umama, is this from your opinion? Is this from your opinion? He said, rather I heard it from Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The hadith collected by Ibn Majah and declared Hassan by Shaykh al-Albani. In yet another narration, Abu Ghalib stated that Abu Umama was walking on a street that led to the main masjid in Damascus in the time after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the time towards the end of the time of the disciples of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he saw that the heads of the khawarij that they were hanging on the streets, they had been executed and they were hanging on the streets of Damascus. So when he saw them, he said, these are the dogs of hell. And they are the worst of those killed under the sky. And the best of men are those whom they killed, who the khawarij they killed. And then he said, and then he recited the statement of Allah, Yawma, yawma tabiyaddu wajuhun wa taswaddu wajuhun the ayah. That some faces on that day will be white and illuminated and radiant. And some faces on that day will be black and darkened. And Abdullah ibn Abbas and Abdullah ibn Umar and others used to say, as for those faces that will be blackened upon that day, then they are the faces of Ahlul Bid'ah. The people of innovation and the people of splitting. So then, I said to Abu Umama, radiallahu anhu, did you hear this from Allah's Messenger? He said, if I had not heard it but once, or two times, or three times, or four times, until he counted on seven occasions, he said, had I not heard it this many number of times, I would never have narrated it to you. The hadith reported by At-Tirmidhi, and it is Hassan. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he spoke about the Khawarij and he said, Al-Khawarij, Qawmusu, that the Khawarij 
are an evil people. لا أعلم في الأرض قوما شرا منهم. He said, and I do not know upon the earth a people more evil than the Khawarij and these terrorists and these extremists. Imam Al-Ajuri rahimahullah ta'ala from 360 after the Hijrah is when he died. He stated, rahimahullah, in his Kitab al-Shari'a. He said, neither the scholars of old nor the scholars of our times have ever differed about the Khawarij. They regarded them as an evil people. That they were disobedient to Allah. And his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that they were that they opposed Allah and they opposed the messenger and they were disobedient to them. And this was alongside the fact that the Khawarij they used to pray and they used to fast and they used to exert themselves in worship but all of this was of no benefit to them Imam al-Ajuri said. Even though they were apparently enjoying the good and forbidding the evil that did not benefit them because they used to be because they were a people who would interpret the Quran in accordance to their desires meaning that it is not permissible to just take the Quran and just start interpreting it how you wish so I'll finish off inshallah with with one or two statements and I think there's a profound statement that I must mention and that is from Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad Hafizullah Ta'ala from the scholars of Medina a statement that he made over 15 years ago when these same Khawarij and extremists were killing Muslims and foreigners in Saudi Arabia. So he said that which has taken place of suicide bombings, destruction in the city of Riyadh, and what was discovered in Mecca and Medina of weapons and explosives in this year, meaning 2003, then all of it is a result of these extremists being misled and misguided by shaitan. This shaitan who beautified for them, this transgressing beyond bounds. So these events that have occurred are from the most disgraceful of crimes and causes of corruption in the earth. So with which intellect and in the name of which religion can suicide bombings, the killing of Muslims, the killing of non-Muslims or under the protection and covenants, a protection of covenants and agreements. And this terrorizing of those who lived in security. And this turning women into widows and children into orphans and the destruction of buildings. How can this ever be considered as jihad? Then another senior scholar, Al-Allama, Al-Sheikh Saleh Al-Fawzan, Hafidhullah Ta'ala commented. So he said, that they call this terrorist act of theirs jihad. And they call it striving in the path of Allah. In reality, it is nothing except jihad and striving in the cause of the devil, of the shaitan. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stated the recompense of the khawarij in the Quran. When Allah stated, إِنَّمَا جَزَاءُ الَّذِينَ يُحَارِبُونَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَيَسْعَوْنَ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَسَادًا when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stated the meaning of which is and the recompense of those who wage war against Allah and His Messenger. The Khawarij think 
that they're waging war to support the religion of Allah and His Messenger. But the scholars, they hold what they're doing to be a war against Allah and His Messenger. The recompense of those who wage war against Allah and His Messenger and spread mischief in the land is that they shall be killed or crucified or their hands and feet be cut off on opposite sides or they be exiled from the land and that is their disgrace in this world and a great torment is theirs in the hereafter meaning that not only are they to be punished in this world for causing the corruption so a Muslim should not feel in his heart well these, these khawarij they should, we should allow them to get away with their terrorist act no we do not allow them to get away with it if we know that they are going to perform a terrorist act then we inform the authorities regardless of which land you live in because they don't discriminate they may kill a woman or a child or a civilian and they break the agreements and they break covenants they have no right to kill anyone so yes we will inform the authorities and we will cooperate with them to stop terrorism and terrorist acts that constrict the lives of Muslims. So this shaitan has died because he wanted to die. May Allah give him what he deserves. But now who's going to suffer afterwards? Who's going to suffer at the airports? Who's going to be sworn at? Whose wife is going to be spat at? Whose jilbab is going to be ripped off? Who's going to be kicked and beaten on the streets because they believe that you're a terrorist just like that terrorist? We didn't opt to join into your fisk, into your sin and your transgression. We in fact opted out. And we didn't want anything to do with it, but you dragged us in. So we have to, we have to suffer the consequences of your crime, you khariji and terrorist and insurgent. So my children have to suffer. And your daughters have to suffer. And our sisters have to suffer. And they have to be sworn at. And they have to be stopped at airports. And they have to be questioned. And they have to undress themselves. Why? Because of the act of these khawarij. They are the worst of those who are killed under the sky. That's what the Prophet said. Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala from the 6th century, he said, in Talbis Iblis, Talbis Iblis, the name of the book, meaning the traps of Iblis and the deceptions of shaitan. So he talks about the khawarij of how shaitan deceived them and beguiled them. He said there are many long stories about them and their strange methodologies. He said, I will not elaborate and make this narrative long by mentioning them. Rather, the intent here is to study the deception of Iblis upon them and how he deceived these fools who reacted hastily to all that they encountered. They believed that Ali ibn Abi Talib, the fourth caliph, was wrong. And those who were with him from the Muhajireen and the Ansar, the companions, they were also wrong. And they themselves were upon the truth, whilst the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad were wrong. And then he said, they permitted the spilling of the blood of children. And I've seen fat fatawa with my own eyes, so-called fatawa, ignorant. From 1994 and 1995, I've seen them with my own eyes by the likes of Abu Qatada and Abu Hamza, 
where they permit, written, signed and stamped, where they permitted the killing of women and children in Algeria. Now the last time I looked, Algeria was a Muslim country. But the Khawarij declared that all of the children and all of the families of all government officials, including nurses, including teachers, that all of them are fair game. So they issued a fatwa saying that they can be killed, their women and their children, children, in the name of Islam. And they called that Islamic, where the Prophet said, do not kill women and children. And that's in jihad. On the battlefield is not allowed to claim well it was only collateral damage. Avoid collateral damage. Don't kill women and children. They gave a fatwa that you could kill and assassinate the children of government officials and teachers and nurses and so on. How is that even ma'qul? How is that even intelligible? That you would say that this is something that Islam allows and then you ascribe that to the Prophet Muhammad? Are you crazy? Is there something wrong with your head? Are you majnoon? That you would even allow for a singular second and non-Muslim to believe that our Prophet Muhammad would sanction something like that? Listen to these words of Ibn al-Jawzi. They permitted the spilling, of, spilling the blood of children, yet they would not allow the eating of fruits from the trees without paying for it first. MashaAllah. You give fatwa for the killing of children and then you say don't pick the fruit of that tree because that tree belongs to the neighbor and it's haram for you to eat the fruit that does not belong to you. MashaAllah. But the lives of people mean nothing to you. They tired themselves out in worship and they would frequently stay awake at night. Yet they raised their swords against the Muslims. Then he finishes by saying, even Iblis himself could not have imagined the extent of this type of evil. And we seek refuge in Allah from being forsaken. That's Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala. That's why Imam Muslim in his Sahih, he has a chapter heading, the exhortation to kill the Khawarij. Imam Muslim from the third century. After Imam al-Bukhari, the second most authentic book of hadith is what? Sahih Muslim. In Sahih Muslim, he has a chapter heading, the exhortation to kill the Khawarij. And then he brings hadith after hadith after hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam about the permissibility of repelling the Khawarij and fighting them and killing them to prevent the harm from the rest of the people. And he mentions in there the hadith of Ali where Ali radiallahu anhu said that Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said they will arise at the end of time. People young in age, foolish in thought, but they will speak as if their words are the words among the best of creation. They will recite the Quran but it will not go beyond their throats. And they will pass through the religion just as, just as an arrow goes through its prey. So wherever you meet them in battle, then kill them. That's the Prophet ﷺ. And then he said you will get a reward on the day of judgment for killing the Khawarij. So if they were so much in favor of the Sharia law, and they were the upholders of the Quran and the Sunnah, why would the Prophet ﷺ command their killing? The Prophet ﷺ would command the killing of a people who uphold the Quran and Sunnah. 
The Prophet ﷺ is commanding the people to fight against them. Don't allow them to infiltrate the ranks of the Muslims because the Khawarij are infiltrators. They have infiltrated the ranks of the Muslims like a cancer that spreads through them. And they target the ignorant. They target the new Muslims. They target the sinners. That's why they don't have people of knowledge with them. That's why they are ex-cons and ex-street guys. Ex-drug dealers. They don't have scholars with them. They claim that they want to establish the Sharia law. In reality, this is nothing but a smoke screen. This is what they said to Ali radiallahu anhu. When they said to Ali, indeed the hukum is for Allah. The rule, it is for Allah. He said, yes, that is a word of truth. But what they intend by that is falsehood. For indeed, I heard the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say that they, will, that they will come a group of people. They will recite the Quran and it will not go beyond their collarbones. And they will go through the religion. They will pass straight through the religion just like an arrow goes through its target. And they will not return. They are infiltrators who come into the religion, cause corruption and leave on the other side. They are corruptors. Bukhari mentions the same. All the books of hadith have these headings in them. All the books of hadith. Go to Bukhari, you will find hadith against the Khawarij. Go to Muslim, you'll find them. Abu Dawud, you'll find them. Tirmidhi, you'll find them. Ibn Majah, you'll find them. An-Nasai, you'll find them. Hardly a book of hadith except the Khawarij are mentioned. Be careful, my brothers and sisters. Don't be duped by them. But my point here in reality is not that I believe that you will be duped because I don't think any right-minded Muslim could ever be duped and beguiled by these Khawarij unless there's something mentally disturbed about you. But my thing is, and our point is, that you have a duty to stand up and call to the truth if you have the knowledge. Do not remain silent in the face of these people. Speak. Give da'wah to the non-Muslims. Inform them about Tawheed. Inform them about our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu That between the Prophet Muhammad and Jesus, as the Prophet sallallahu said, that there was no Prophet between me and Isa. And all of the Prophets, they are brothers. Their mothers may be different, but their religion is one. The religion of Muhammad is the same religion as Jesus. The worship of one God. Not the worship of three or four or five or six. Worship of one God. And he is Allah. The one, the one who, is worthy of, who is worthy of our worship. And we encourage them to become Muslim, to understand Islam. That's why the Prophet wasallam. that's why the scholars, they say, if a person really heard, a person or, or, or a da'iyah or, or, or one who calls to Allah, truly inviting a non-Muslim with ilm, sincerely from his heart, then you'll find the non-Muslims entering into Islam in huge numbers. Because the message of Islam is so beautiful and it is so pristine and it is so clear. It is marred and polluted by the likes of the Khawarij who infiltrate the ranks of the Muslims and they destroy the message of Islam. So don't be deceived. Barakallahu feekum. And upon that note, I'll finish for today. Wajazakumullahu khairan. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.